0: Hello. Welcome to Salty Therapy. This is Tammy. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice. However, this podcast is not intended to be used in place of professional treatment. It is intended for encouragement, information, and entertainment. Today we'll begin a three-part conversation about addiction. This is something that is prevalent in this country. It does not discriminate, and it comes in many forms. It's destroying lives and families. This will be a series of talks that will cover not only the topic of addiction itself, but also recovery, being a family member of a person with a substance abuse disorder, relapse prevention, and more. This topic is very broad, and we will touch on a number of areas in these podcasts, but I'm certain that we will not touch every scenario. But please be aware, if we haven't spoken directly to your addiction, to your struggle, it isn't because it doesn't matter or that it isn't as important. It's simply that we are bound by time constraints. So we're going to start with talking about what addiction is, and I've gotten some information from different locations, and I just want to go through this because there are a lot of um, assumptions about addiction based on your personal experience or what social media says, Um, and I want to give facts. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, which can be found at ASAM.org, defines addiction as a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. I like that definition, especially towards the end when it speaks about um, that the compulsive behavior will continue despite harmful consequences. For those of us that don't struggle with addiction, family members go, I don't understand. How can you overdose and then go right back to the drug? Or how can you go to jail and return to the drug? That that's a part of the addiction. The harmful consequences don't always equal their bottom. Addiction is not limited to drugs and alcohol, but can include pornography, sex, gambling, food, shopping. There's So many more that I can't list, but anything that can lead to compulsive behaviors that lead to an interference in one's daily activities or relationships, and behaviors continued despite negative consequences, can be seen as an addiction. Now we also have to speak to the family history. It is agreed by many in the field of studying addiction that there is a genetic predisposition for addiction. However, the family history can also play a part in the environment one has grown up in. It speaks to that never-ending argument over nature versus nurture, but in this case it seems to be that both nature and nurture have an impact on one's risk of abusing substances or having a dependence. This is not to say that the parents are to blame, that you weren't a good enough mom, or you weren't a good enough provider. It has nothing to do with that. Somebody can grow up in a home that is neglectful, or they were abandoned by a parent, or there was domestic violence in the home, and that, nature versus nurture component can have an impact on them when it comes to substance abuse. However, there can be somebody that comes from a home where there's no struggle, the provision is full and complete, they have every opportunity available to them, but they can also be affected by those things in terms of substance abuse and addiction. It really depends on the individual. It depends on how those um, events process in their mind. The National Institute on Drug Abuse states that environmental factors can quote-unquote mark or remodel the structure of DNA at the cell level which can increase the proteins common in addiction. Isn't that incredible? These environmental factors can include poverty, living in a home that includes substance abuse, poor nutrition, domestic violence, trauma, emotional neglect, among other things. We talked about abandonment. We talked about um, entitlement if they are given too much if there isn't enough oversight or if there aren't consequences all of these things can have an impact predisposition the national institute on drug abuse they report that there are studies that are being done on genes and chromosomes to try to clearly identify markers so that they can identify prevention and treatment. I love that they're working on trying to identify prevention as well as treatment. At this point, they have been able to link a chromosome that controls a gene in the brain that indicates the prevalence for marijuana disorder. That's just the beginning. Imagine if they can do that for so many of these other substances, particularly alcohol and opiates. We have a heroin slash opiate epidemic on our hands in this country. People are dying every single day due to overdoses. Alcoholism has been around forever and is just tearing families apart. So the work that they're doing is so important. Now we're going to talk about what happens in the brain. It may get a little bit of science nerd, which I am not. So understand that I am speaking from, one, a place of training, but also from some research. So I'm going to try to explain this the best way I can in a very uh, layman's term, um, but I will be using some... some Definitions or terms of the brain that are not familiar to you. So I'm going to speak slowly. Um, and you can always back this up and listen to it again. So some drugs overactivate the basal ganglia area of the brain. That's the reward center of the brain for things such as food, sex, and socializing. Eventually, over time, this area of the brain becomes desensitized with the use of drugs or alcohol. Therefore, it makes it harder for a person to find pleasure without the drug, and then they begin chasing the high. If you've known anybody to struggle with addiction, they'll tell you sometimes that they have been um, searching for that first high again. Once that first high comes and goes, it's rare that they can find that, that exact same euphoric moment. Some individuals use drugs to get relief from anxiety and irritability, which is played out in the extended amygdala. Okay, so now we've talked about the basal ganglia, which is our reward center, and now we're talking about the amygdala, the extended amygdala, which is where the anxiety and irritability uh, reside. So between the overactivity in the basal ganglia and the extended amygdala, substance use disorder results in compulsivity and reduced impulse control, which is found in the prefrontal cortex. So now we've got three areas of the brain that are involved in the substance abuse and eventually substance dependence. So first, it's the basal ganglia, which is your pleasure center. That's what lights up when when they like the drugs or the alcohol. The extended amygdala is where that anxiety and the irritability plays out. Right. While, while they're using the drugs to, to, um, try to find that euphoric high, there may be some irritability or with withdrawals, there may be irritability and anxiety. And so that's getting lit up. So between the overactivity in the pleasure center and that amygdala, now you've got this compulsivity and you've just, all they can think of is it's just compulsive and obsessive and therefore reduces the impulse control, which happens in that prefrontal prefrontal cortex. Now the prefrontal cortex, the reason this is so important is this is the last part of the brain to develop and it powers the ability to think, plan, and problem solve, as well as make decisions and exert self-control. It's important to know that this area of the brain does not finish developing for most people until age 25 years old. 25 years old. By 25 years old, there are so many people already addicted or dependent on a substance. So you think about an adolescent, that adolescent brain is at most risk because their prefrontal lobe is years away from fully developing. If they've lit up that basal ganglia, and now they're chasing the high. They go through withdrawals, they're irritable, they're anxious. So the uh, the amygdala, the extended amygdala is now overreacting. So you've got the basal ganglia that's desensitized, the overreactive extended amygdala, and then the um, the prefrontal cortex that is not completely developed. And th- it's just a recipe for disaster for an adolescent. The same compulsion and impulsivity found in these substances that I'm talking about can also be exhibited with food and sex and gambling and note that's on and on and on. Now, I want to give a very innocent example of how addiction can begin you may have a child that is, we'll use my son as an example. He was a football player and he was a heavyweight wrestler. So he was very aggressive physically and was in obviously full contact sports. And he sustained a pretty significant uh, fracture to his leg. When he went to the emergency room, uh, they immediately gave him morphine because the pain was that intense. The fracture was pretty significant. And of course, he immediately went into la-la land and was happy as a lark. They sent him home with pain medication appropriately. If he had been predisposed to substance abuse, we would have had a problem because his brain would have lit up like a Christmas tree and said, oh, I like that pill, and if one is good, I bet two is better and three is got to be the best. And before you know it, they're sneaking and they're abusing the drugs, um, which can lead to then drug-seeking behavior. You may have um, an adolescent who is prone to peer pressure. They go to a school party or it's an after football game event or it's summertime and they're hanging out with their friends. Somebody offers them marijuana. And as a therapist that's worked in the area of substance abuse, I will tell you in more cases than not, the young people that I work with that struggle with, um, serious substance dependence or substance abuse, um, it always started with uh, marijuana. Even before tobacco, they were smoking marijuana. So they've been innocently offered a hit off of a joint, and they start to take some hits, and they realize, man, they like this feeling. It's fun. It chills them out. They're in this group setting. It's a group think. Uh, peer pressure, it feels good. They don't have to worry about anything. They, they feel comfortable in their skin. It might be the same with alcohol. It's an innocent school party. You've seen it in the movies. You've seen it on television programs. You've probably experienced it yourself. And they have a couple of beers. It's their first time. And what happens is their brains light up if they're predisposed. So these are innocent beginnings. It's, it's not something that they went out and looked to become addicted to something. They probably didn't even think about the possibility of getting addicted, right? To them, it was, oh, I just drank a couple of beers. I just had a joint. It wasn't a big deal. But what happens is, is that part of the brain lights up because of the predisposition? Man, they can't stop thinking about it. The compulsion, the obsession starts showing up. This can happen in college students. Innocently enough, they are taking a full load, they're exhausted, they're cramming, it's finals, they have papers to write, exams to study for, they're pulling all-nighters, and somebody says, hey, I've got something that'll help you stay awake, and it's Adderall. For somebody who does not have ADD, ADHD, Adderall is speed, it's an amphetamine, and it keeps them awake and it keeps them going, and they get an A on that exam, and they get that paper finished on time, and to them, they've used a tool. The problem is, is they find themselves turning to the Adderall again, and then again, and then again, and then before you know it, they've become dependent on that as a coping school- skill, or worst case, they become dependent on the speed. Their body likes the speed, and they're abusing. They started abusing when they accepted a pill that was not prescribed to them. What about adults? Could it be you? Could it be that you go out with the ladies and one glass of wine, when you go out with the ladies, eventually turns into three glasses of wine? eventually turns into coming home from work and having a half a bottle of wine alone at night while you watch TV, which turns into a bottle of wine a day. Over time, your body gets used to one glass, to three glasses, to a half a bottle, to a bottle, and you need it. You find that you begin to crave it because that's what helps you relax. That's what helps you come down from the day. You never went into it trying to be an alcoholic, but if you're predisposed, your body will respond and your body will become dependent. Substance abuse can be an attempt at self-medicating as a result of a trauma or a co-occurring disorder. Traumas can be sexual trauma, can be domestic violence, military trauma. It can be a traumatic loss of a loved one, going through grief. It can be many different things. It can be um having had a terrible car accident and walking away from that. Oh, with a great sense of fear. Perhaps you're afraid to get in a car now and so you're isolating. And that isolating has just now lent itself to self medicating the loneliness and the anxiety and the fears and the depression. A co-occurring disorder is going to be a mental health disorder in combination with a substance abuse disorder. Now, whether or not it's been diagnosed is beside the point. You can have clinical depression. You can have schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety. They may not have been officially diagnosed, but it may be present. You may have a substance abuse disorder. You may be dependent on alcohol, even though you haven't sought treatment and nobody's really talking about it. But those two together are your co-occurring disorders. And in most cases, the substance abuse is really your attempt to alleviate the symptoms of the mental health diagnosis you're uncomfortable in your own skin. If you're schizophrenic, you may be hearing voices, you may be experiencing delusions or hallucinations, and drinking or using drugs, particularly uh, something like marijuana, it, it brings you to a place where you, you find some reprieve from some of those symptoms. You might be drinking at night to alleviate the anxiety that you're feeling throughout the day. So what does somebody with a substance abuse or substance use disorder look like? Now, you may have an idea of what it looks like. We stereotype, right? And I would hope that today our viewpoint on that is better than it was say 20 years ago 20 years ago somebody may have said oh it's that homeless woman that walks around with the shopping cart full of garbage or the wino laying on the side sidewalk you know with his bag under his head but i'm here to tell you that as i said in the beginning it doesn't discriminate It can be the teenager from an impoverished community with a high gang activity and drug use. It can be a trust fund individual that has a very comfortable standard of living. Men, women, married, single, with children, without children, heterosexual, LBGTQ. They may have an amazing job, be a CEO a doctor, a nurse, a police officer, they may not be employed at all. They may have been in and out of jail, in and out of prison, have a a rap sheet the length of my arm, or they may have no criminal history whatsoever. Every race, every ethnicity, though some are not as well-known due to unreported cases as a result of their cultures and the stigma attached. But it's present. There's no discrimination between religious beliefs, political standing, or level of education. I want to give you some statistics, and I think that these are sobering, so I really want to share these with you. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism reports that in 2018, 26.45% of people 18 years and older report binge drinking in the last month and 6.6% report heavy alcohol use in the past month. Per the NIAA, which is the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. The 2018 survey reports that 14.4 million adults have an alcohol use disorder. Only 7.7% of these received treatment in the last year. Think about that. Over 14 million adults have a disorder, but only 7% of those 14 million have received treatment in the last year. In 2018, an estimated 401,000 adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 years old have an alcohol use disorder and only 5% receive treatment. 10% of children live with a parent that has alcohol problems. Alcohol use disorder cost in the United States in 2010 was 249 billion that's billion with a B, billion dollars. In 2012, it was reported that there were 3.3 million deaths globally due to alcohol. alcohol, which is legal. The National Institute on Drug Abuse reports in 2018 that just over 67,000 Americans died from drug overdose with illicit and prescription drugs. Now, I can tell you that this is now 2020. The numbers in 2019 are probably much higher than that, and I don't see them going down this year especially with the epidemic with opioids and heroin, with fentanyl and carfentanil in the heroin. Illicit drug use cost the United States $193 billion in 2007. In 2013, just prescription opioids cost $78.5 billion dollars within the LGBTQ community adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 are 10% more likely to use illicit substances than their heterosexual peers what does that say to you that says that they're self-medicating in 2015 The National Institute of Drug Abuse reports that the LGBTQ adult population is twice as likely to use illicit drugs, and one in 10 people abuse prescription opioids. So we first talked about the adolescents within that community, and that they are self-medicating, right? But then as adults, they're twice as likely to use illicit drugs. And 1 in 10, 10% in that community are abusing prescription opioids. So what does this all mean for the friends and the family members of the substance abuser? So for those of you that are listening and wondering what in the world is going on with my child or my brother or my husband, it can mean that A, this was an innocent beginning And your loved one is now struggling with a dependency that they either cannot or will not address. They cannot because they may not have access to the resources or the support system to do that. I just spoke to somebody um, not long ago who said they desperately want to come off of the opiates that they are taking And they have weaned themselves down to the point that anymore, and they're going to go into withdrawals, and they don't know how to manage that and work at the same time, and they can't afford to go to a detox or to a rehab to complete that process. So it isn't that they aren't willing, it's they feel that they cannot because they don't have the resources. They will not because they're either not ready or the fear of life without the substance or life without numbing absolutely terrifies them. They absolutely do not see themselves being able to handle the pain or the shame or the guilt. They don't even know how to identify their feelings anymore, much less manage them. Another reason that they may be afraid is because of becoming dope sick, going through the withdrawals. It's horrible. And the idea of going through that keeps them running after the drugs. If you talk to some people who are chronic drug abusers, they will tell you, They don't even like it anymore. But what they don't like more is being dope sick. Um, Your loved one's addiction is not your fault. You must know that. And you cannot want sobriety for them more than they want it for themselves. They have to want it more. They have to want it for themselves not for their children, not for you, not for their job, not for all the reasons that you think that they would look at and go, oh my gosh, I can't lose that. I'm going to give this up. They've got to want it for themselves because they don't want to live their lives like that anymore. Whether your loved one receives help or not, You have the responsibility to get help for yourself because one thing that is certain about substance abuse and about addiction in, in general is that it is a family disease. Everybody is affected. The consequences are on everybody and there are programs out there to support family members Allatine for teenagers, Alanon, which is for family members of those struggling with alcoholism, Naranon, those struggling with drug addiction. There is um, Celebrate Recovery, which supports not only the person in recovery, but also the family members, which is a, a Christian based 12 step program. There is CODA, which is a group for codependency. So there are many, many different programs out there available to help you. And if nothing else, find a therapist that that specializes in substance abuse and see a therapist and work with that therapist. So the next time we meet, we're going to discuss recovery. Addiction is a difficult conversation to have because it affects millions of people, not just those that use, but their friends and family members as well. Our economy, our law enforcement, courts, hospitals are affected at high levels, and they're costing this country billions of dollars. There are people dying every day from this disease. Therefore, we must talk about it if we want to see a change. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give me a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family. If you have comments or suggestions for future podcasts, you can also find me at saltytherapy.com or at saltytherapy on Instagram and Facebook. Peace and joy. See you next week.